Breaking the Glass, episode 24. I wanted to make some money. I wanted to be successful. And I wanted to do something that could create change for other people. That was my mission. I knew that much. I didn't know how. I didn't know how yet. But I knew that much. So I was trying to make the decision between going to law school and going to business school. Law school, obviously, because my father went to law school. He got a scholarship there. I respect my father. I know what hit, hit the way his mind thinks. It was just yeah. always fascinated me. And I wanted to potentially follow his footsteps. Ironically, he was the one who encouraged me not to go to law school. Hmm. He, he said, look, you're in California, and otherwise, and there's enough lawyers in the world. That's the first thing he said. And then the second thing he said was, um, in our community, we have had all types of movements. We've had a social movement. We've had an educa- uh, educational movement. We've had a civil movement. We've had a political movement. We have all of these, a, a, a legal movement in terms of trying to change the laws to make things better for us. But what we've never had is an economic movement. We've yeah. never had an economic movement. And all the things that you've done, he was telling me, he said, I think you should be in business and finance. He mm. said, I think you should be in that field. And so I, I think you should consider pursuing your MBA. And I took his advice. And that's what ended up starting me on the trajectory. And as a result, uh, back to that mission of wanting to make money, be successful, and create change. Uh, the economic piece, my father encouraged me to consider, which I said he's right. So I want that. I want to learn the financial world. I mean, the people who who, who control the paper run the world. Welcome to the Breaking the Glass Show with TQ Sinkungu. Together, we'll dig inside the success stories of people of color and share those stories to inspire you. Then we'll break down their path to show you what they did so you can learn from their wisdom and follow in their footsteps. Welcome to episode 24. My guest today is Mark Ranger. Mark is a great friend of mine and we go all the way back to our time together at the Air Force Academy. We actually both got stationed as well out in Los Angeles where we lived near one another for about the last 20 years. Mark grew up also coincidentally in the Dallas, Texas area, as well as Atlanta, and uh, played football in high school. That ability in sports carried him to have a Division I scholarship uh, at the Air Force Academy where he played there during his career. And after graduating, got stationed in L.A., like I mentioned, where he became a contracts officer. While he was at L.A., he knew that he wanted to do his time in the Air Force and serve well and then get out and, and pursue an entrepreneurial career field. To prepare for that, he got his MBA from Loyola Marymount in Los Angeles. And while his dad was a Harvard Law School graduate, he encouraged Mark to go to business school so he could do the things and accomplish what he wanted to, like you heard about in the intro, with relationship to a revolution in the financial industry. His philosophy is to make money, be successful, and make change. And he preferred the financial upside of a life as an entrepreneur and is willing to take the risk of having a lack of a safety net in order to pursue that upside. While his early career on started out very challenging, where he had many difficult times that he'll explain in the interview, he persevered and had a tremendous success first as a financial advisor for Ameriprise Financial and then as a manager of other advisors, he's been very successful in his uh, career field and successful advisors in the field of financial advising can make hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars. And you, you'll be able to see that, that Mark manages tons of money. Like you may have heard of the person, Chris Gardner, who was played by Will Smith in the movie Pursuit of Happiness. Mark's career has kind of been like that. From scratch, he's built a career where he was first, like I said, an advisor, and then became more of a coach to other teams of advisors. 
and then finally a manager of a big swath of independent advisors out in the LA area. He led his team when he first became a manager from being number 280 out of close to 300 teams in the company up to the number two team in all of Ameriprise. That got him recognition. They gave him more responsibility and that more responsibility, he took that and turned it into more success. And he grew his business from growing around $2 billion in assets under management when he began his management role to current day where he manages around $18 billion of assets under management. He's had an extraordinary successful career. He's also been very impactful in the community, giving speeches um, and presentations on money management and financial uh, development. And that has even grown further into his current brand, which is called Money Motivation. It's a brand he's developing that primarily has apparel and publishing and will also grow to have a speaking portion to or have a, a speaker's tour. And all of that is about helping other people achieve that same philosophy of making money, be successful and making change. You can find them at moneymotivation.co on Facebook and Instagram and moneymotivation.com where you can find their apparel and his publishing materials and any information about where it's growing in the future. You're going to love this conversation. This guy's super solid, extremely confident, very engaging and attractive personality. Please enjoy my interview with Mark Ranger. My guest today is Dever Marcus Ranger II. Mark, how you doing? What's up, PQ? I'm doing well. How you doing? Good. Welcome to the show today, man. It's good to have you on Breaking the Glass. Yeah, should be fun. Outstanding. What we like to do is start the show with something I call the lightning round background. So why don't you give the people an idea of how life was for you coming up? A little bit about, you know, from childhood through the college areas. Give us the highlights of what life was like for you. So it's funny. I wonder if people are actually truly interested in your story all the time, but I'll give you my e true Hollywood story to the extent that I can. So I was born in Dallas, Texas in Oak Cliff. I uh, was there you know, one year or so uh, in my life after I was born and my folks moved to Detroit. My pops took a position with General Motors there, uh, but quickly found out that uh, 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 it's extremely cold and he didn't like that. They didn't like that. So we moved to Atlanta, Georgia, moved to Decatur, uh, DeKalb County in Decatur. And that's where I grew up from, call it uh, preschool to ninth grade. Uh, I was in Atlanta, Georgia, in Georgia, in Decatur, in DeKalb County. And um, uh, I went to Chapel Hill Elementary there. And uh, I ended up doing uh, um, uh, things in the neighborhood and, and, and things in terms of activities and sports a little later in life. I got involved in some martial arts and did some other things. And later on, I started playing football. But by all intents and purposes, for most of my friends and other people, I didn't start playing football until late. I started, I think, seventh grade, sixth or seventh grade. Right. Uh, but ended up, going, ended up going to Southwest DeKalb High School. Uh, and so I was the Cap Panthers and, uh, the eighth and ninth grade. And then my folks moved back to Dallas. So we moved back to Dallas. And, uh, what was interesting is when we were leaving and I was playing football at South the Cab and was playing receiver and the coach, Buck Godfrey, legendary coach in Atlanta and got Buck Godfrey stadium down there. And uh, he actually, uh, he actually lobbied with my mother to try to get me to stay with him in Atlanta during football season to play football and play receiver for the team that was coming. But of course, Moslem having that, ironically, <laughs> we left, 
we left and went to Dallas. And that next year, several times during the year, South DeKalb was ranked number one in the country in high oh, school wow. football, if you believe that. So who knows? Who knows what could happen? But anyway, <laughs> it is what it is. So moved to Dallas, uh, ended up uh, going to Skyline High School in Dallas, Texas, uh, in Pleasant Grove. And uh, so from sophomore year, junior year, senior year, and played football there as well as uh, for all intents and purposes, started playing baseball late. I started playing baseball my uh, sophomore year in high school. Oh, wow. First time I played baseball. But I, but I ended up being good at both sports. And um, um, uh, as a result, was uh, able to be recruited to play some football at some different schools and ended up ultimately getting recruited to play ball at the Air Force Academy. So that's, uh, that's where we time, met. We yeah. met at the Air Force Academy. Right. Um, and But before right. that, while you were coming up, would you, I always ask, would you have considered yourself growing up high class, middle class, low class, no class? Like what, what level were y'all at in terms of what you were living like growing up? I always think you never really know why you're going through it. Like right. you think, you know, everything, it's just what you know. It's just, you know, you just living. looking back, you always say, man, that we really weren't in the, in the, you know, ideal situation. But if I had to quantify it, I'd say this, my, my folks, my family was an extremely educated family. Their, their, their purpose and focus around how you grew up was education was important. It was primary and it was paramount. We there were no dumb rangers in the family. I mean, that that was the deal. And so, and where where'd your dad go to school? Where where where'd your pops go to school? Yeah, my pop, <laughs> I am Tara High School in Fort Worth. He went on to Morehouse College on the scholarship out uh, of Morehouse, and then got a full scholarship to go to Harvard Law School. Oh yeah, okay. Well uh, so that was his trek. Yeah, yeah, very well educated. My mother similarly. And, um, you know, so, so we didn't come from a family, you know, that, that didn't believe in that. And then my, my father came from, uh, uh, uh 11 children mm. and uh, my mother and, and, and again, very educated. My grandfather was a preacher, but they all lived in one, one house, you know, 11 children in one house right. trying to figure out how to grow up. And my mother was actually raised by a single mother, uh, as well in Memphis, Tennessee. But in any event, uh, so very educated family, a family of public service and community, but but money or capital was not really the thing. So yeah. if I had to quantify it, I'd say it was, I don't know, I guess lower middle class to whatever might be slightly below that. But we weren't in poverty. It wasn't, right. you know, uh, hand to mouth necessarily, but it was just enough to get by, you know, and we had the Charlie Brown tree and we were trying to figure <laughs> out how to, you know. <laughs> do this and do that you know it was just enough to get by and y'all and, the thing uh, is you weren't born with any yeah. kind of silver spoon growing up oh no no and no so not, the, not by any means no there was no inheritance there was no silver spoon i mean we had to borrow money just like everybody else right yeah, yeah. and that's and, yeah. and i and yeah, i try yeah. to highlight that to so when people see where you came to they know you didn't start you know at the 50 yard no. line in life no, 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 not and, at all. There was no money available for a leg up by any means. It was, you know, what my parents did were and were able to do was what they were able to do. And that, as I said, was just enough to get by. And then from there, you know, their whole goal was try to help support me and encourage me to do it. But no, there was no inheritance. There was no silver spoon by any means. And I lived in the community uh, like like most of us uh, many times that are growing up that, that has its um, uh, unfortunate negatives or, or challenging situations, whether that's gangs, whether that's drugs, whether that's, you know, being shot at, you know, carrying friends to the hospital. Having Did you ever experience killed, any of that? Uh, all of those things. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, and that's why I'm naming it. I mean, we, I had that side of the coin, uh, of all of those things, of, of all of those things I mentioned. I mean, friends being killed by gang wars. I mean, drug, drugs involved, friends being sent to prison, uh, for years, you know, uh, yeah. uh, carrying friends to the, carrying friends to the hospital, you know, who was shot because we getting shot at by, uh, yeah, well, I just leave it at that. I mean, we, you know, we had all those things, but, but on the flip side though, um, very positive. I mean, I always from Atlanta to Dallas, it was a community. I mean, right. it was a community of people and, um, love and families and, um, parents down the street were like our parents and they treated us, you know, in that way. I mean, it was community. It was both sides of the coin without a doubt. But from all of those things, I mean, I have lifelong friends and some experiences that I think quite frankly, you know, you got to go through something to get to something. Yeah. And I think they teach you a lot about life and about perseverance and about, you know, being, having some pride, not only about where you come from, but about making a better life for yourself and everybody around you. And then being able to go back in some way and, and hopefully uh, give back. So all of that was a part of it. It was both sides. You know, everybody's got their story and everybody got their stories and things that happened. But, you know, for me, without a doubt, it, it was both sides of those coins. Now, whenever you coin. were um, coming up during that time, as opposed to your dad being one of 11, you were one of one, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. That's right. That's right. Now, one one. what, what do right. you think? How did that impact your development? Did that allow the educational background that your parents have for them to focus it on, on you and give you rich experiences in terms of developing you as a person growing up? Oh, big time. I would say those two things. Yeah, me being the only child without a doubt. And, and then secondly, me having both of my parents together, still together right now. Um, I can't think of any of my friends, uh, particular high school years and that type of thing, who had both of their parents together. It was always their mother. None of my immediate friends had both of their parents still together. So I, um, I think both of those things, that ability to focus on my mother, you know, with her um, approach, I mean, she definitely... Uh, wanted to do any and everything to give me the best possible shot to be extremely successful and poured into me. And my father, the same way poured into me and all of those things. I mean, for my father, you know, it was, it was learning how to pay the price. It was learning excellence. It was learning pride. It's where I gained my, uh, my uh, appetite for reading. He was a voracious reader. Mm. And uh, I saw that and, um, and all of that. And he poured, you know, he poured that into me by example, uh, and, and the things that he stated and said, and my mother was the one who taught me how to treat people. He taught, she taught me how to influence really. I think my mother, my mother is the best salesperson I know. I mean, yeah. she can make a chicken chase a snake, you know, she, she, <laughs> she is a salesperson, you know, and she helped me understand the dynamic of human behavior, the power of giving and, and poured that into me and all, yeah. all surrounding all of that was community and public service. Cause they lived a life without a doubt of public service. So yeah, I, without a doubt, those two things made a big difference. What's one of the lessons you remember that your dad intentionally taught you that you carry through life to this day? Yeah. The, the two that I mentioned, but more specifically, all, well, three, I would say the three things I always remember him saying to me, he would say, you got to pay the price to live a life. Mm. He would always tell me that you got to pay the price to live a life. Secondly, because he went to Morehouse and Dr. Benjamin E. Mays and Dr. Benjamin E. Mays would say, do your job so well that no man living, no man dead, no man yet to be born could do it any better. Hmm. And that was part of that mantra of excellence. And the last thing that I always remember him saying to me, no matter what, he would always say to me, you're the greatest. You're the greatest. Hmm. I mean, he would tell me that constantly, constantly, constantly. And it always stuck with me. So you know, I think those things, as well as just who he was and his approach, I mean, that, you know, getting that embedded in your head and pouring that stuff into you makes it, I mean, it, you know, it has an impact that way. You know, um, I, I was just listening uh, earlier today, actually, to Chadwick Bozeman's 
uh, commencement speech at Howard University this year. And he said, you said the greatest. It reminded me because he had a chance encounter on the, I guess it's the yard of the square at Howard. Forgive me all the HU people out there if I'm not getting that right, what, what the area is called. Um, <laughs> but he had an encounter with him with Muhammad Ali on the yard. Mm-hmm. And he said like, he just felt like mm. he was passing off because he did like a little a fake fight. Like he get, did, put his fists up and did a little spar. Out of nowhere, right. they saw each other. He did it just with him. Then his security took Muhammad Ali and ushered him off to the side. While he was a student, this happened to Chadwick Boseman. And uh, you said the wow. greatest because yeah. you, you had an encounter with the greatest, if I'm not mistaken. I did. And I, I was, <laughs> uh, I got a picture to commemorate it that I always remember, but I was young. I couldn't even talk. I don't know. I was one, one years old maybe. And, uh, and in Dallas and, and to your point, Ali was uh, doing an exhibition fight in Dallas. My mother and father went to the fight uh, and Ali was in the crowd. Same thing. He's, he's gesturing. He's, you know, play, play fighting, you know, with different people. Uh, but showing love to the crowd because he was that people's champ type person. But then as the story goes, my mother was holding me and they were kind of off to the side and, and, um, and, and, and Muhammad Ali saw me and he made a beeline and my mother, he picked me up, he kissed me on the cheek and said something like, yeah, this kid's going to be the greatest, greatest type thing, you know, and put his fist up to my <laughs> cheek and that type of thing. And, 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 and the cameras, you know, they took pictures and everything and it was in the newspaper. So I got wow. the newspaper clipping and I got the picture. Uh, and, um, and so it was great. And, and, and to connect that back, what was interesting is, uh, you know, it's a great story. And I always remember that type of thing, had a connection to it. But later on in my career, particularly in the financial world, Muhammad Ali actually had some accounts with my current firm, wow. with, with Ameriprise, American Express Ameriprise. In any event, I met a leader uh, who uh, is from the Midwest, you know, in that area, Louisville, and he kind of was managing that area. And so he, he actually knew and met Ali and who Ali's financial advisor was. Well, and this is right when Ali was still alive before he passed away. So he asked me to send send him a copy of that picture from when I was young. So I sent it to him just on text. And then about four weeks later, I got in the mail the GQ magazine where he was voted athlete of the year with his signature because he saw the picture. Oh and and so it came full circle back, you know, later on. So I got that in the room. I mean, it's just amazing. I'm sure most people are interested in that story, but it's an amazing, it was amazing nah. you know, connecting back, you know, from a long time ago. That's amazing. That's who he was, though. That's who he was, though. That's the type of he, you know, that's who he was. That's that's, that's who Muhammad Ali was. Yeah. You know, those types of things. They, you know, you never forget those names. That's the kind of person to aspire to be. You know. That's right. That's well, right. you you that's so right. you finished high school and then got to the Air Force Academy. Um, and and what was your experience like going through and navigating through there? What what are some highlights? Well, yeah, I I, I had no intention of going to the academy. I mean, uh, it, it was football is what got me there. I, it wasn't even on my radar. I don't have any military in my, well, my uncle John was in the Marines and that was the only military connection that I had. But out of any, any, you know, we didn't have any military history, so to speak, or legacy of that. And it wasn't even on my radar about any academy. I didn't know anything about the academy, but um, got recruited. Um, ironically, they, the recruiter, the, the, the athletic recruiter came down at that time was actually coming down to recruit a friend of mine because we were the two prospects coming out that year and um he was a linebacker he was coming to recruit him and happened to see me on film and then it escalated from there mm. so um and um and um uh, 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 uh side story to that i mentioned i played baseball too it was me making a decision because i ended up being decent in baseball got invited to some um uh, uh spring trainings with some minor league teams and then got rained out but then i had to make a decision to sign at air force the next week or go to this camp so it was one of those life decision things, but I decided to sign with Air Force. But I had no 
intention of going to any academy, but it was mm-hmm. actually my father. My father was the one who encouraged me to really consider it because he said, "Look." Um, it's not too many opportunities that we get for an education like this with yeah. one of the leading, one of the best leadership institutions in the world. Uh, you get to play division one football right. and most likely build, you know, the, the semblance of a career in which you could have a lot of options, even though I know, you know, it wasn't in me to say that I necessarily wanted to be in the military. So that's what ended up happening. So when I got there, it was a struggle for me, as I'm sure like most, I ended up right. going to the prep school initially uh, because he in particular had recruited me late and I needed to get some SAT scores up. So I went to the prep school, played football there, and went into the academy. And it was a struggle for me at first. I mean, it was a mental struggle. More mm. than the physical and all that, it was a mental struggle for me to adapt to the environment because it wasn't on my radar to do, and I had to completely shift what my expectation was going to be about college and about all of those things to right. this. And it was a struggle for a number of years for me to get there uh, eventually did. It was the hardest thing I've done in my life, but it was worth it. I'm glad I did it. I got lifelong friends and experiences I wouldn't have had otherwise. And as you know, you don't come out the normal 21, 22 right. year old when you come out of that institution. Well, so I don't know if you remember, man, but you, you even gave me a shot, you know, uh, to be on your staff whenever you were a group commander during basic training. Gave me a shot, let me get on yeah. staff with you, and definitely learned a lot from you during that period of time. And what do you think it takes? What's What do you think you developed in terms of what you brought to the table to help you succeed and then what you came out with uh, from going through that academy experience that makes you a different, not a normal type of 21-year-old? So I think it's similar to uh, any any um, body or institution or ritual or um, rites of passage that you go through. That could be from the African tradition, that could be fraternities, that could be you know institutions like the academy the whole concept of it is really to strip you down to some bare bones and then build you back up with certain values uh, tied to a mission or tied to some uh, brotherhood, sisterhood, you know, uh, uh, some community, some body of people um, that gives you a sense of pride about who you are and what you stand for. And also what you've gone through and, 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 and the, uh, the commitment that you have to that. So what it taught me was all of those things. It yeah. was the, the sense of pride about it because when you go through something like that, that nobody else really understands right. what you've been through, there's a sense of pride out of that, that you have. Secondly is just that, that perseverance. It's when you go through so much, you end up realizing that most things that most people worry about or concerned about or even trying to get through that they think are a big deal really aren't a big deal. And so you come out of it with a, a different sense of resilience, I think, mm. that, uh, that, you know, that, that really makes a difference. And then the mental toughness that comes with it, because, you, I mean, it's a mental game more than anything else. Right. It's a mental toughness to be able to deal with the, the, the balance of the academics, the athletics, the, the military side of things, the non-traditional college environment and all the demands related to that, that typically are twice what anybody else would deal with the mental toughness that you come out with that and the competitive spirit that you come out with that. And then, you know, the loyalty to everything related to it. Uh, and, and most importantly, the, the friends that you build there. I mean, it's, it's, it, that's, that's tough to, uh, it's tough for anybody to say that uh, you don't, you don't get something out of that. Yeah. and It's not worth it, regardless of how difficult and how hard or whatever. I mean, it, it, you know, it, it gives you something that you just you take for you. You take with you the rest of your life. I agree, man. Like uh, my closest friends 
our academy grads. I mean, you know, our, my classmate Jamie, yeah. our friend, I was just at his wedding, right. you know, uh, last in his wedding last summer. So we, right. you know, we stay close. We built a close relationship, stay close. It's awesome ties to bind. Now you left the academy right. and then went uh, into the military. What was your, what were your stops after that? Yeah. So, uh, stayed at Academy one year, worked in the minority enrollment program, came back to Texas, which is part of, look, I, you know, I didn't know about this. Maybe there are others who aren't aware and need to be aware. So I was able to recruit in my hometown and other Southwest states around that, uh, to talk about the Academy, give education, that type of thing. So I did that for a year. Uh, and then, uh, my career field was contract. So, you know, you can, in the Air Force, you can negotiate for a lot of different things. And uh, I wanted to negotiate some big money deals if possible. So I lobbied and was lucky and blessed uh, to be able to go to Los Angeles and not a bad place after you've been four or five years at the academy. So I was able to get that assignment to go to the Space and Missile Systems Center in Los Angeles and be a contract negotiator. So I worked in contracts for a satellite program in, uh, in L.A., and I, I did all of that with the intent of getting out. I never planned on staying in the military. I planned on doing my five years because I wasn't a pilot and, and getting out. And so I uh, went there with a contract negotiator. Shortly after I got to Los Angeles, I started my MBA uh, at Loyola Marymount University. And uh, I uh, did my MBA with a double emphasis in entrepreneurship and finance. But I wanted to pay for it myself because right. Air Force would have added more time on. So I paid for it myself. Uh, I started it in uh, 99, 2000, somewhere around in there and lined up the three-year program right to about the year that I'd be completing my Air Force commitment all with the intent of, of getting out of the Air Force and moving on to another career. So that was the, you know, the, the, Air Force the stop part. that I made. And that's right, the Air Force part. That's right. That's right. And, you know, which was a great experience. Didn't negotiate those big money contracts and being the lead negotiator, you know, learned a lot from that. And it was great. Um, I, I obviously came to L.A. as well a year after you did, and our paths were intertwined during that time as well. So That's right. That's um, right. I remember, man, I tell people all the time, man, when I was in the best shape of my life was those lunchtime workouts at L.A. Air Force Base, man. <laughs> I remember, I don't know how many deadlifts and, right. you know, uh, yeah. bench presses we did during that time, man. But, you know, I think in the best shape of my life was during that time. Hey, we got it in. I forgot about that, but you're right. We used to get it in and then playing basketball, too. I yeah. mean, it was all of it. You know, you got the cardio, you got the lift, you're right. Yeah, we were getting it in. So, <laughs> you, you, what um, drew you to entrepreneurialism and finance? Because this is obviously the tra- trajectory of your career and where you spent most right. of it is in this world. Um, what drew you to that? What attracted you about that career field? Yeah, so... It started where I was trying to figure out if I was going to go to law school or go to business school. I hadn't quite figured out what I wanted to do after the Air Force, but I knew I wanted it to be, uh, I wanted to be, well, I had a mission. I wanted to make some money. I wanted to be successful and I wanted to do something that could create change for other people. That was my mission. I knew that much. I didn't know how, I didn't know how yet, but I knew that much. So I was trying to make the decision between going to law school and going to business school. Law school, obviously, because my father went to law school, he got a scholarship there. I respect my father. I know what I hit, I hit the way his mind thinks. It was just yeah. always fascinated me. And I wanted to potentially follow his footsteps. Ironically, he was the one who encouraged me not to go to law school. Hmm. He, he said, you look, you're in California. And otherwise, and there's enough lawyers in the world. That's the first thing he said. And then the second thing he said was, um, in our community, we have had all types of movements. We've had a social movement. We've had an educa- uh, educational movement. We've had a civil movement. We've had a political movement. We have all of these, a, a, 
a legal movement in terms of trying to change the laws to make things better for us. But what we've never had is an economic movement. We've yeah. never had an economic movement. And all the things that you've done, he was telling me, he said, I think you should be in business and finance. He mm. said, I think you should be in that field. And so I, I think you should consider pursuing your MBA. And I took his advice. And that's what ended up starting me on the trajectory. And as a result, uh, back to that mission of wanting to make money, be successful and create change. Uh, the economic piece, my father encouraged me to consider, which I said, he's right. So I want that. I want to learn the financial world. I mean, the people who, who, who control the paper run the world. So yeah. I wanted to r- learn the financial side. And that's what, it, that's what got me on the financial piece. And then the entrepreneurship piece was, was that piece around trying to figure out how to be in an incentive based world where you can be in control, make some change, make some money, but learn the value of entrepreneurship and, and how to run a business, how to operate a business, how to be in business. And I wanted to do both. So that's what motivated me to do that. And uh, shortly after starting my MBA, I, I ended up making the decision that I could actually combine the two, meaning be in an incentive-based world, plus uh, be in the financial world to truly not only learn it from the book standpoint, but a practical standpoint. Right. And the only way you do that, the only way you learn it is by doing it. So, so I decided to jump into the financial world, and that's that's how it came. You um, you slid by something real quick there that you talked about earlier, but I want to I want to know if you want to elaborate any more on having excellent on time mentorship from your father. Seems like it's directed your path in a powerful way. Can you talk about how just I mean those words? There's so many. Yeah turning points in life that we make where we can make one decision to the right or to the left or need somebody to walk along us a little bit for a little while while we think through something. And you had your dad there for yeah. that um, in this critical moment. Can you talk about how important that was? There, there is no doubt. And it, it's, it's, it's amazing that you can pick up on subtleties like that, uh, TQ, but there's no doubt in my mind that I would not be sitting here today accomplishing anything that I've accomplished. And I even many times don't feel like I've done it. I, I got more. I got a lot more to do. Uh, but I, there's no way I'd be sitting where I am today without my father. I mean, his guidance, his discernment, his mentorship, his uh, feedback, his advice, to your point, along critical points in my life, he was, he was what I believe to be the difference maker to help me really figure out how I'd be going and what I'd be doing. And I think that um, in many ways, anyone you know who has someone influential like that, is important. And he, in some way, acted in that way for a lot of my friends. Like I mentioned, most of my friends did not have their fathers in in their life. And he was the one that they could come to. And of course, Mama Ranger, you know, she gonna love everybody. But he was the one that, you know, from uh, helping to make decisions and having serious, I mean, real life conversations to guide and his ability to think. I mean, it's just amazing how he's able to. So yeah, you know, the key piece, I mean, just to, to shorten this and make it, you know, the direct around it, if I had encompassed it is he would always ask me a lot of questions. He would, you know, think through things and he would definitely give me the advice. But one of the key questions that he would ask me even before he would give me advice is, do you believe that, that, that what you are doing right now is going to get you to where you want to be in life? Hmm. Like that was one of his key questions. And that encompasses so much because you got to know where you want to go in life to even answer that question. To even answer that question, right? And that's what, yeah. So it was a broad question for a reason, but it was specific at the same time. Yeah. And and you know the follow up was if the answer to that question is yes, you believe that what you're doing is going to get you there, then you do whatever whatever you got to do. 
Mm. You know, you do whatever you got to do to continue down that path. And if you don't, now we need to discuss the changes that need to be made. But I always remember that key question he would always ask me. Um, and, you know, there's just a lot in that conversation. And he'd give me his honest feedback and opinion. He would never tell me what to do. Right. But, you know, well, kind of. <laughs> he wouldn't tell me what to do, but it'd be strongly encouraged. Yeah. He'd give you di- advice <laughs> yeah, and direction, yeah. but still let you, let you make your decision. It, it was clear. Yeah. It was clear. Like, they, yeah, it was very clear, but he would still allow me to make the decision. No doubt. So now you start on the next path out of the military and you move into your entrepreneurial financial world with what was in American Express Financial Advisors, now Ameriprise. Talk about that position change, that that movement that you made and, and what, what you were thinking about going that way. And if, and if you could, too, tell us who, who Ameriprise is and all of that. For sure. So, um, um, as I mentioned, it, it was that whole philosophy of thought process around the finance and entrepreneurship side. And, and the other key theme to this that I do want to point out is when you're going and starting your career and, and getting into a career or, or changing a career, I think the two fundamental choices you have is, excuse me, do you want to be in an incentive-based business where there's not any guarantee but a ton of upside? Mm. Or do you want to be in a... Um, a stable income type situation in which there isn't a lot of risk, but a lot of guarantees. Yeah. It it doesn't matter what you choose, meaning whether that's entrepreneurship or working with a company or working with a small business or doing this or that. Those are really the two fundamental choices you got to make. I think that will, you know, will determine a lot of things in terms of the money you make, in terms of success you have, your happiness, your, you know, all of that. So let's, let's pause there for a minute. Let's pause there for a minute. Yeah. Um, what kind of person do you think does either of those kind of things? So first, what kind of person pursues safety or if you can speak to it, maybe better because you're, you chose obviously the incentive based option, what kind of person would lean more towards doing the incentive base? Yeah, that's, um, the, the only thing that comes to mind, I think, is, 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 is the evaluation of risk, right. meaning everybody wants to make money and be successful for the most part, I think. You know, most people I meet would say, of course, I want to make more money. And of course, I'd like to be more successful. But everybody doesn't evaluate risk the same way, because the two fundamental pieces to both of those scenarios is the amount of risk you're willing to take. Right. On the one hand, in the incentive side, there is, you know. Uh, the there's no uh, safety net, right? You, if you drop to the bottom, you are literally at the bottom. Yeah, you, there's no, there's nothing, there's nothing there. Some people are not willing to take that risk, uh, as well as the effort it takes to be able to achieve that. It's a lot more work, typically, right. a lot more work. Um, so that risk and you know trade off, I think, what I, to answer your question would be is those who either by their nature or by how they have been um, groomed in some way or trained or uh, uh, in terms of how they think and what they want to do. Because I do think it is something that can be taught or something that can be ingrained in someone who mm-hmm. doesn't have it. It's, it's how they, how they evaluate and view risk and really understand that in order to achieve anything great, you got to take a lot of risk. You have to. And uh, if, if that's what you're willing to do and that's the path you want to be on, then the choice you are going to choose an incentive base. But if 
you just ha- like the idea of it, but are not willing to take the risk and need that safety net, then yeah, I mean, you're going to choose a more stable career. And I'm not saying one is bad or good. You're just giving it advice. Just has, it has significantly different outcomes. Right. Yes, exactly. Well, so significantly, significantly different outcomes in how your life can turn out. You, um, made an interesting point there about not having a backstop this i think if we can take a little bit of a detour for a second i think has and and let me know if you've seen this because you've worked among as people will see amongst a lot of financially well-to-do folks you said there's if you uh if the bottom falls out there's you just hit the bottom well some people don't some people have parents who have done really well and some of them might have worked for you and the bottom fell out and they had a home waiting for them with their parents. They had lots of money to be given them to start another idea that they had in life. And, and oftentimes those differences are, are racially, um, uh, dis, dis, disparate, you know, like most minorities don't have that. You, we talk about not having that silver spoon, you know, most of us don't have that to fall back right. on. Can you talk about, like you said, because of your experience, there's no bot that you just hit the bottom, but it's not like that for somebody. And it's a racially kind of sometimes a racially diverse thing. Can you talk about that in your experience, what you've seen in terms of that risk taking uh, a willingness? That, that, yeah, that is, um, that's a, that's an interesting observation you make, but you're right. There, there is a difference many times in those who may view risk different ways, because to your point, somebody who may come from money or may have, from parents or others, an umbrella they know they can count on or lean on uh, if things don't go right. Um, it gives them a different evaluation of risk. Well, I actually think they technically don't think it's as much of a risk, let's say, because right. they know they can fall back on that. And as a result, I also think that means that they they end up being not as hungry. Mm. They end up being not as, uh, you know, the, the ethic is not the same because they got something to fall back on not saying they can't still achieve certain things or be successful, but I don't think that the hunger, the effort, and all of that is really the same versus someone uh, who evaluates that risk differently because they don't have that fallback position. And their attitude and position is, um, if I don't make this work, I got nothing else. Right. So I have to make it work. I have no choice <laughs> but to make it work. So it becomes a different approach, I think. So I think it's more of the, you know, it's it's, even that evaluation of risk to me is different. They might, you know, somebody with that fallback might take the option of taking a risk, but it's not the same evaluation of risk as somebody like me who doesn't have it or somebody else in my position who, you know, doesn't have that backstop where we know, look, I, I don't have an option, but to succeed, I might fall and have setbacks along the way, but it's about whether or not you give up because the person like that would give up because they right. don't make the fallback. Right. Right. And so there's that. Um, and then the other side of that that you mentioned is, yeah, I mean, many times, most of the time, um, in our experience, you know, from a racial standpoint or from a race standpoint, um, most of the people of color and black people uh, don't have that backstop. We don't come from a, a family that has that. So it creates mentally, I think, sometimes the fear of pursuing that because the stable route is in some ways what has been taught. Right. The stable route, the traditional route, the, you know, in making your own way, this is how you do it. And this is the deal. And because you don't have a backstop, this is why you should be doing it this right. way. Right. So it's, a, you know, it's like a twisted, you know, <laughs> thing. 
So I think that, uh, yeah, and that all to me, back to your original question, I think all of that thought process has an impact on the decisions that people make, sometimes not, not even knowing it, not even knowing that you're, you may be sacrificing so much more by taking a traditional stable route than you even realize uh, because that's just what's been ingrained. That's been taught. That's been tradition. That's been, you know, how it's always been. And there's this, this, this fear of doing anything outside of that. So you chose the the riskier route after, or quote unquote, riskier route um, in some people's eyes, but in your eyes, the, the more, with the more upside and you, you took the route somewhat of who I think of oftentimes when I think about you is that Chris Gardner pursuit of happiness type of route of, of just kind of, you know, earning it out on your own. So let's talk about what is Ameriprise and what did you end up going to do for them? Right. So, so the progression, just to ask the question about Ameriprise and how they came by, and I'll go back to the original question and how that all, you know, what, I, what was going on at that time. Um, so I started with American Express Financial Advisors, and the concept of the model is uh, American Express at the time had a wealth management division, a car division, and a travel division. The wealth management division did financial planning and wealth management for individuals and, and, and businesses and, and institutions and that type of thing. But the model was uh, you could come in and get licensed because in order to be in the financial industry and on the sales side, trading security and investing money uh, and giving advice, you have to be licensed. And so they had a model in which you could get licensed. They would train you to be a financial advisor. And then from that training, you could go and build a book of business uh, a la Chris Gardner, a la other things under their model. So they would provide the the trading platform and the model for you to be able to do it. But you had to go out and build this book of business, this assets and client base. And you essentially started out on what was called a draw, meaning you would get something, let's say for two weeks, but if you didn't produce anything or get any clients or get any assets, you went in a negative, mm. you know, in terms of money. Right. So, Let's say I, you know, and it was, it was no money. It was like $24,000 a year, right? So you get, so $2,000 you get over the course of two weeks. But if I didn't produce or, get, or gather assets or make trades enough to cover that two grand, I went into the negative. Mm. So you're like, a, you're like a, ba- the, a, a negative balance on your account, so to speak. A negative balance. That's right. A negative balance. Then the next week, if I didn't produce anything, now I'm four grand in there, you know, whatever. I mean, I'm just using easy, easy math. It wasn't right. exact that, but you get the point. But um, but the point was, you know, that there, that, that's no safety net. That's yeah. I got something that will give me something while I'm moving, but I, Oh, like that's a debt. That's right. not actually money in my pocket. Right. That's a debt that I have to, I have to climb out of. And so there was no, it, it was all incentive based in terms of that. And even that money that was being given any money you can live on in LA, you got twenty twenty four thousand dollars You can't live on that in LA. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> So it, it, it was an incentive-based platform in which you, you had this model you could build a practice, but it, there was no cap on the upside. If right. you built a practice with X amount of assets that was generating revenue, that was your revenue that you got a certain that you kept a certain percentage of, and it was there was the sky was the limit in terms of how much you could build. But then the other piece of it was their model was in three to four years or five years once you got to a, a reasonable level of assets, you could actually start your own franchise, so to speak, meaning be an independent contractor and start your own business, take that book of business and become your own entrepreneur and start your own business, running that book of business, but still use their platform to trade securities and that type of thing. So that was the, my, what I thought to be in, in interviewing and talking to a lot of firms, 
my best opportunity to say I could get into the financial industry. I could learn this world from a reputable company. I could learn, you know, the system from the inside out, build something up, and then apply that to an entrepreneurial model in which I'm my own boss and could build something from there and, and go from there. But either way, I'm still in an incentive-based business. Whether I decide to go out and do this own franchise and start this business or decide to continue uh, as an advisor uh, in a branch, it was all incentive-based where there was no safety net and, uh, you know, I ate what I killed. So right. Now, so that, that's that. And then, and yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, so then, then the progression was American Express ended up spinning off the wealth management division and it became Ameriprise Financial. So it's the, I'm with the same company that I've always been with. Just we spun off and came our own firm on the New York Stock Exchange in 2005 and brought the bank with us from American Express and established our own financial institution. Right. And so that's the firm that I've been with from, from, from then on out. So that's, that's all about the, uh, yeah, on that piece on Ameriprise and American Express. So take us into those first couple of years, because you about to be big money ranger now, right? Like you, you, you eat what you kill, the upside is unlimited. Right, what, right. what, what did a typical work week look like? And, and how did it yep. go for you in those early days? No doubt. So, so the, the, the business model in terms of what we were doing, because that's the other piece that you ask is, um, it, it is a wealth management and financial advice business, meaning we provide investments in wealth management, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, uh, real estate investments uh, in terms of uh, securities types of investments, not hard assets, but uh, all of the various things related to investments and managing individuals and businesses' monies for that. In addition, providing an outline of services we can provide comprehensive advice for individuals in all areas of their life, no matter what they're trying to do to improve the quality of their decisions and then be paid on an annual basis in addition to the wealth management for that. So it's, those are the types of services that you're building a book of business to provide the client. So in my first couple of years, uh, it was, like I said, I'm starting from scratch. I'm starting from zero. I got nothing. I, I don't know a bunch of people with money. You didn't have no, you had a, uh, a Rolodex full of millionaires to call on? <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. basically what if you're I saying, did, I want to I want to break it down for the folks who may not know yeah. to clarify what you're saying. You right. basically are saying somebody has money. They bring it to you to help them either preserve it, grow it, protect it, insure it, do whatever they need to do to manage whatever money they have and help as they gain more wealth. You help them manage it and keep it together. Is, is that a good summary? That's right. Help them. Exactly. Yeah. Through, and, through, through, through investment, through investment vehicles to be able to do that. And then the second piece of that is typically they're trying to do it for something in the future. It could be just accumulating the wealth right. or it could be for some specific things. But yes, it's managing that entire process and then giving them advice on what to actually do. Now, you were talking about all these multimillionaires in your Rolodex. What were you saying about that? Right, right, right. That, that I didn't have them. So <laughs> I'm starting from scratch and didn't know anybody but my friends and people coming out the Air Force and the people, the few people I met in L.A. for being there for, what, maybe four years, five, four years, I think. Yeah. And starting from zero, trying to build a book of business in the financial industry where you have to be able to get people who can invest money. I mean, if you can't give advice to people who ain't got money. So right. you got to be able to build that from scratch. So I literally, at that point in time, because there wasn't do not call rules and that type of thing, it was basically cold calling, you know, for the most part. We would get, you know, leads, let's say, let's say people calling in to try to get American Express card and I get some of those and I'd be calling them to talk to them about managing their money or giving them advice. 
or beating the streets, you know, to go down and, and, and knock on the doors of business owners to talk about helping them set up their retirement plans or invest their money because they're making money and need to figure it out, need to be protected and build wealth or doing seminars and, uh, you know, trying to give advice to people who didn't want to raise their hands and say, hey, I'd like to work with you or, or talking to CPAs and attorneys. I mean, it was a uh, smile and dial, pound the street, nonstop marketing effort day to day to try to go out and get clients and basically build something from scratch. And if I didn't close a deal or I didn't get any assets or I didn't get somebody who had the confidence to hire me, I didn't make any money. Right. That and negative started building debt. up. Or I was in debt. Yeah, that's right. Or I was in debt. So that first couple of years, it was literally, um, oh, and what I forgot to say was during this time I was making this transition. Yeah. It was a lot of friends who were saying to me, are you sure you want to do this? Right. Are you sure you want to, you know, you, 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 you getting offered six figure jobs to go work for some defense contractor. Are you sure you want to do this? Right. And I, yeah, I do because I, I know I can be worth more. I want more. I want to make money, be successful, create and work more. So I had that side of it and, you know, I was battling that too. So that first two years was, was actually first three years. It was, um, hand to mouth. Literally. I mean, I, I, I still have a journal writing down when I was at some of my lowest points and the rent that I owe and my lights about to get cut off mm. and my phone about to get cut off. And I, I I'm taking, you know, speakers out the back of my car to go down to Crenshaw to the pawn shop to try to sell them so I could figure out how to put gas in the car. Mm. And go and you know, the guy in the pawn shop, like, man, I got all these speakers already in here. I don't want to buy this speaker. You right. know, right. <laughs> you know it, it was just those types of experiences that, I went through and, you know, being in, in the credit, credit is shot, right? Because, right. you know, I'm trying to survive and all of those things that, uh, and, and, uh, and, and our friend, I remember I was talking with Montoya about this and, uh, I remember a couple of instances in which everybody was trying to get together and I just couldn't do it. There was one trip trying to get, everybody was trying to go to New Orleans. I'm like, I'm there, I'm coming. But then in the end, I just didn't have the money to do it, but right. I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed to say, I, I can't, I, don't, I can't go. I don't have the money to go. And I was supposed to be taking this gal I was dating down there at the time. I didn't have the heart to tell everybody I couldn't go. So I made up some lame excuse and didn't go. Ironically, the girl I was supposed to go with still ended up saying she's going to go down there. She went down there probably with some other dude. But you know what I mean? But it That's was like, crazy. You know, <laughs> it's cold. But I just didn't have it. So that, yeah. I was, it was literally hand to mouth. How did you make it through? I wanted to give up. It, it was back to that question that my pops would ask me. Look, do you feel like and what you're doing right now is going to get you to where you want to be in life. And if the answer to that question is yes, it's worth it to go through whatever the hell you got to go through to get there. That's what got me through. Because I always felt like I knew that I would, I, I would get there. If I just didn't give up and kept with it, I knew that I would eventually, it would turn and I would eventually get there. And that's what kept me in the game. Because right. I had this belief that, you know, it, 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 it would get me to where I wanted to be in life. So, mm. Yeah, that first three years was all of that. It was it was smiling and dialing. It was trying to build a practice from scratch, and it was trying to uh, uh, basically convince people that uh, that I had the uh, that they could be confident in me to entrust them with you know basically their life savings, mm. you know, and the things that they needed to do to build, which was a tall order to be able to do, and took a lot of uh, back mental toughness, you know, mental toughness to be able to uh, build that. So. What turned the corner for you when you said it took a lot of mental toughness? What helped turn that corner finally? The time and activity, the time and activity, just like it is with most things. I mean, with most things, nothing happens immediately. Nothing happens overnight. And right when you, you know, um, give up or about to give up, all of a sudden something turns 
And I think it was just the volume of activity and time with doing all of those key things and key tasks and uh, sticking to a game plan and not giving up and having that resilience to actually get there. Then eventually um, what happened is I had a combination of things. One was I started to have a base of a practice that was generating some revenue. Secondly, because I was having some success, because mind you, even though I was grinding that way, the marks I was hitting where you know, I was having achieving some level of success in terms of my growth progress, right. there were other people who started to say, hey, I want, I want a team with you. Mm. So now I was able to leverage, okay, now I can team with somebody to maybe do some of these things I'm not good at so I can go focus more on what I am good at, which is being in front of people. So then I brought on a team member. Then that turned. Then, you know, at the time, the firm said, hey, you're actually pretty good at these areas. Do, do you want to consider maybe coaching some other people? Mm. I said, well, how does that look? Well, if you coach some other people, then you're going to get points on the packages what they do. So, so you I make a percentage of what they there. make. You can make That's a percentage right. of what the money they That's make because right. you're coaching them to do what they do. There you go. In addition to my practice. So I said, okay, that's another revenue stream. I could do, okay, great. Then I got that. Then eventually through having success there, they said, hey, we got this branch of, you know, 18 advisors who are struggling. And at the bottom of the country, what they do, you've done so well as a coach and in your practice, how, you know, would you consider just running the branch and teaching them the same things you be doing. Great. Now that whole percentage expands even more. And I still had my practice at the time. So it was a combination of all of those things. Mm. And then the leverage that I started to get through these different pieces that by the way, I was open to being able to explore, um, ended up creating just a snowball effect of, um, income of recognition of success of a following of influence and then over time, that builds a reputation. And before you know it, people start coming to you. Talk about you know, what that so, looked like. So you yeah. started to build a reputation. Can you do you remember like a certain situation where something happened where they recognize you for doing a certain thing that you did, maybe with that team or something like that, how things might have turned around for you? Yeah, well, it, it was in two areas. One was, let's say, in the guys of the firm that I was working with. And another area was in the community that I was working with. So right. the guys of the firm. Yeah. I started getting, I, you know, I got recognized as the Central Coast leader of the year for Southern California for leading these other advisors and coaching them and helping them to achieve success. So that established a reputation, let's say, with the firm to say, hey, maybe this is somebody up and coming uh, in the community because I was doing a lot of speaking engagements and, and they were for free. I wasn't getting paid to speak, right. but they were for free. Yeah. And I was doing education. Sometimes it was with a purpose to try to acquire clients. Sometimes it was just to educate so I started to develop a reputation as someone who actually had some value and people enjoyed speaking to. So that led to a newsletter and a local local newspaper. Uh, and that led to, you know, other speaking engagements and referrals of people who would refer business owners or other people to me. And eventually uh, actually being able to sit in on uh, uh, Karen Bass, Congresswoman Karen Bass uh, in, in, in California in her district sitting on uh, a board as a financial member in her board, which again, expanded nice. the reputation in the community and been able to build it. So it was a combination of all of those things that when on the reputation side that built up. And then once that starts to happen, uh, you know, I, it, it, it creates this momentum that I think then leads to a lot of opportunity. Very nice. And but it's all, it's all from not, it's all from, it's, but, but before that it looked dismal, you know what yeah, I mean? It's yeah. not like you can see, you can't see any of that. And that's how it is with anybody I'm sure you've interviewed or talked to. They'll tell you it's at certain points in time where you're just grinding. You can't really see the light at the end of the tunnel. 
But in their mind, they know that I'm going to get there. This is going to work. And all of a sudden, you know, at, at some point in time, there's different, different people, these opportunities just start to open up because you weren't willing to give up. Right. Very right. So I wonder, um, one sort of, as a coach, one question, what do you think it took? What's the skill set that's required for you to be as a leader? Uh, you know, I hesitate to call it manager, but coach, what skill set did you bring to the table to transfer what you were doing well yourself to other people? Because I always say like people like, you know, let's say Michael Jordan could never be a coach because if he's really good at it, he can't teach it to anybody else. You were really doing really well on building up in your practice. But how are you able to translate that to training other people? What skills does it take to do well at that? Two, two things. As a coach or, you know, trying to lead other people is two things that you got to be able to bring value in. The first is you got to be able to help people think differently. If you coach somebody, leading somebody, you got to be able to help them think differently because most of the time they're not able to get to that next level because it's something in their head or something they're afraid of or some roadblock or some old way of thinking or they keep doing the same thing over and over again and getting the same result. So you got to be able to help them think differently. And if you can't help them think differently, it's going to be tough to get them to move. And then the second thing is help them to execute because most people fall down on the execution side. They may have a good idea or may, you know, be smart and may be working hard, but they're just not able to actually execute on the things that need to get done in order to achieve the results. So I think as a coach or as any leader, the biggest value in, in any situation, it doesn't matter what you're in, as a leader, if you the biggest value you can bring is to help people think differently and execute. If you do that, they'll love you and they'll win. What, so that's how how do you thought. get somebody to think differently? Like that's that seems like a science in itself. What's what's one or two things that, that you can do to do that? And do you have an example of a story of a person who you worked with who you could say, Man, this person switched it up and started to think differently? A lot of examples of that. I'd have to really go back and roll next thing of one that's really good. But the first piece of the, the question I would say is this. I mean, um, there has to be some trust between you and that person in order for them to even listen. So in some way you got to develop, I think a baseline of trust and credibility with that person so they can even, you know, even listen. Second is you got to be able to influence it. The ability to influence, which also I think is a science within itself and understanding some of the dynamic of how to influence people is you have to incorporate elements of uh, being able to influence people in order to get them to move. And if you can't, if you can't influence people or help people make a decision, then it's very tough. But in ter- but all of that to me leads to how then you can get them to think differently, because if they trust you, if they trust you, they'll listen. And if you understand the dynamics of how to influence people, then that is the understanding the dynamic of human behavior, where you'll put things that are for good in place to help influence them. Then in terms of helping them think differently, now they're trusting you to listen. You've got them understanding their behavior and how to influence them. Now you can, I think, get inside their heads to be able to say, hey, listen, this is, you know, this is how you're currently thinking about it or doing it. Let me show you a different way and then being able to walk them down a path. But that thinking differently or the ability to think differently, I think, starts with them trusting you and being able to influence. Because if they don't trust you and you're not able to influence them, it doesn't really matter what you say. It's not going to help them think differently, but I think that's where it starts to me, at least in my experience and my ability to do that. How are you able to build trust? What 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 was your go-to uh, set of things you did to build trust with one of your advisors who you were coaching? Getting on their side of the table. 
I think it always starts again on their side of the table. It's never trying to talk down to people. It's trying to relate to them. It's trying to connect with them. Like if I can find some common ground with that person, then now they're, they're opening up. Oh, we're, we're both from Texas. Oh, you know, you, you, you know, we both play football or, you know, uh, we got some crazy aunt or whatever. That's just some, 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 some level of connection I think is definitely key. Second, like I mentioned, getting on the same side of the table with them. I think trying to, understand the position and where that person is coming from and communicating that you understand that and, and truly understand it, not right. just lip service, but truly understand that. And that because of that, you want to help them get to a different place and you're sitting on the side, same side of the table to be a partner with them versus just a transaction where you're trying to get something out of them. They go do their thing. You go do your thing and everybody does what they do. Right. But no, we in this together type thing. I think off the top of my head, um, that's, been the approach. I might not have been able to articulate it like I just did to UTQ, but as you're asking me, that's what I know I attempt to yeah. do is, okay, how can I con- connect with this person to get them to trust me and be open, at least open up and then get on the same side of the table so they feel like this? Because most people, they're skeptical. They think it's a transaction. They're going right, to think, you know, right. they're just trying to get what they're going to get and move on. But if people feel like you're in partnership with them, I think you can get them to think differently. And so can you give us, can you quantify this a, a little bit as much as you're comfortable in two ways? One is I, I don't recall the specifics, but I know you and took a team from being really low in the company all the way to being at the top of the company. Um, why don't you talk about that yeah. as you progressed? And then what kind of volume of business were you doing compared to you were going from selling stuff to live to now you're really producing really well, not just for you, but for other advisors what was that growth like? Right. So, um, to answer the first question, yeah. So I it ended up at, through that progression. I took over, uh, Long Beach, uh, a group of advisors, so to speak, who were doing the same thing, building a practice. And at the time, call it, there were, <clears throat> um, I think 300, call it 300 groups or branches or offices in, in, in the company at that particular time. And they were ranked like 280 or something out of 300. They were at the bottom. And then uh, within um, within of a year, um, was able to move them. But yeah, I call it a year and three months, a year and four months. Was able to move them from 280 uh, to the top to top five in the country, basically. And what that basically meant was, in terms of their growth, in terms of their ability to acquire clients, in terms of their ability to give advice for a fee, in terms of their production, all of these various metrics, uh, the growth related to that, as well as what they were doing from a volume perspective. Uh, our metrics relative to everybody else, we made some tremendous strides in growth. And it was uh, it was actually one of the funnest times of my life. So not top 5%. Not top 5%. Y'all was top five, number no. five, one, two, three, four, yeah. five in the company. That's right. That's right. That's right. I, actually, I think it was number two uh, <laughs> where we ended, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We, we, yeah. So that's what, that, and then that's what put me on the map. Uh, in terms of potentially an executive route, let's say, as well as, you know, skills and being able to lead people and um, uh, give advice and do all of these things, because I, it was a, it was a, it was a hell of a ride to be able to make that type of move. So that created a trajectory, no doubt. And then from a uh, income perspective and from a growth perspective, you know, I mean, my, you know, my income went, you know, from, like I said, call it the $24,000 or whatever it was to being in the top 2% of income earners in the country. Wow. You know, top 2 or 3% of income earners in the country. And, you know, that was uh, by my, I'll call it my fifth 
yeah, by my fifth year, fourth or fifth year, I think the fifth year being in the business, something like that. So you were, so it was, you uh, were, uh yeah. two years prior to that, you were saying you couldn't even see that result. And no. in two years, you're top 2% earners in the country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Prior to that, I was a speaker's on Crenshaw. Yeah, but <laughs> uh, but 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 after that, yeah, I, I ended up. I was like top three percent income earners in the country in terms of gross revenue. I was I was getting from all the you know the business and all the things that were going on and I was doing. And then it just it just went on from there. Never looked back. So it not your back. not your personal income, but in terms of assets under management, how much were you guys managing, if you recall? Um, and what's the growth been since then? It's probably about two billion, uh, one and a half to two billion in assets. Wow! Um, wow. At that time, wow. Uh, and then, and now, uh, now uh, uh, managing basically about eighteen billion, eighteen to twenty billion um, today. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's a lot of billions that you. That you <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot. It's a lot of billions. Uh, yeah, and at yeah. the time you were managing eighteen advisors in one office in Long Beach, which is like a for those who don't know, it's like a, a little bit south of Los Angeles, um, in in that general area in the Southland. And so you grew from that role to manage. Did you grow to managing more folks after that in that area to get to eighteen billion, or did y'all just start? Uh, you catch yeah. Kobe Bryant and Magic and all them <laughs> at one time. Bruno right. Mars, everybody. No doubt. No doubt. So it went from, um, it basically went from, I was running Long Beach and then had the success there. And then they asked me, you know, they said, would, would you entertain taking over the Los Angeles office, which was a larger office and larger opportunity, but it was a sinking ship because of some previous leadership. So I ended up going and taking over the, the Los Angeles office. Um, and uh, I was running that for about two years and then um, maybe a year and a half, two years. Yeah, I think two years. And then uh, from there, this is where the other turn occurred, because all of that was still working with individuals who basically were similar to me at the time, trying to build a career new in the business. They were all new in the business, typically less than five years in the business. And they were trying to build a career just like I had started, you know, but I had started before them type thing. And what was the name uh, of the, the role? The like, what would you have called? What were you called? Yeah, that time? I was. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I was called. I was called a uh, a field vice president. Okay, field vice president is what I was called, and I was managing a basically an office of advisors at that in Long Beach first, and then ended up being in L.A. And Long Beach was about eighteen advisors, and L.A. was about thirty advisors. Got it. So, um, so field vice president there, and then uh, the turn came when I mentioned earlier how initially I gotten. Uh, in the career and in particular with American Express, now Ameriprise, because they had a model that had both sides. I mean, they had a model in which you could actually be in this role to build within the company where they would provide all the systems and the staff and all that stuff, but you could build your own practice and then the model that I described earlier. But in addition to that, they had a model in which they say, hey, listen, you can sign an independent contractor agreement with us. We'll still provide you the securities platform and the operational systems to do it but you run your own business, basically set up as what in most people's understanding would be like a franchise where, look, we'll franchise the systems to you, but you go set up your own office under your own brand and run your own staff, hire and fire, set up your own real estate and run your own money and do your own business. So the majority of advisors with the firm actually were operating in that independent channel. So out of 10,000 advisors with the firm, 7,000 were independent already, wow. so running their own business, but as franchises. 
so the turn came when the company came to me. I'd always, and they, you know, some way knew I'd always planned on being in the independent world. And they said, Hey, look, um, you know, we know you were going to be independent, running your own practice, the whole thing, but we actually would, would, it would be great. Or we'd love it. If you consider, um, taking over the independent channel of the company for Southern California, meaning mm. instead of running your own practice, you now would be leading and working with 330 franchise independent advisors to help them grow their businesses. And as a result, get a percentage of that pie. Wow. So I said, <laughs> okay. Thank you, and the sir. Reason, I have another. That's right. That's right. And the reason was not only the scale and the opportunity in Southern California being in the world, one of the largest economies in the world, right. but it was always that if I didn't do this, um, I may never have another opportunity to, but I can always go back into practice, but not the other way around. Right. You see what I mean? So, you know, and, and in both cases, I'm still in an incentive-based environment. I'm not on some high salary, you know, getting paid a bunch of money to do this role. My my compensation is incentive-based. If I don't perform and I don't work with these independent advisors to help them do all the things needed to grow the business and get more clients and get more assets and do all of that, I don't make money. Right. So, so it's now you are effectively, you are a coach instead of just for these field offices. Now you're a coach for all of these 330 independent advisors. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. So I'm, so I'm, so I'm an executive, a senior executive with the firm acting, uh, you know, primary strategy and business development role, leading those 330 advisors to, to do more business as well as get more stores, you know, cause we got other people who may want to start independent businesses. So it's both sides, it's the growth of the existing businesses, and then it, it's adding new independent advisors uh, as well to set up shop and set up offices and build that. And I, I lead that business unit for the firm. Wow. So, so that's, that's how I got to the eight. That's how I got to the 18 billion. That's where all the billions came from. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's how I got to the eight. You've worked in a span of time. This is just a curiosity question. You've worked in a span of time that started in the early 2000s. So like you said, I think 0203. Until mm-hmm. now in 2018, it's May of 2018. What are some of the different ways in which clients get business now that just didn't even exist in the same way back then, given the, the technological advances that have happened? Um, can you can you talk about some of the things that are different now than they were then that, that your uh, advisors used to gain business and, and things like that that are different than they were before? Social media, without a doubt. I mean, that 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 without a doubt is from a um, marketing standpoint, a relationship standpoint, a presence standpoint is a major way that a lot of individuals, not all, but many are incorporating marketing strategies to figure out how they're going to get clients and uh, and create a presence and a brand. I'll call it a brand is the best way to say it um, uh, in a very noisy you know, space, so to speak, because it's very noisy. But uh, I definitely say that that is, without a doubt, one of the big differences. Because back in the day, you could you could cold call, you could do this, but with caller ID and all, and nobody answering your phone. They know you're not answering your phone. Right. So somebody gonna call a broker, a broker advisor gonna call you to try to solicit you to 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 invest money. I mean, you know, <laughs> that just doesn't exist in today's world anymore. So the bulk of the selling strategies that I see that people are using are really around how they can build a brand uh, 
to build a following, so to speak. And that following could be gained in a number of different ways. It could be community related through the work they're doing to educate. Uh, it could be through a niche market because most people grow very dramatically by focusing on some niche market of clientele. For they example, know where to find what's, them. A, they know, what's a good example of that? Yeah. It could be any industry. So it could be uh, a niche market of nurses or a niche market of entertainment executives, uh, a niche market of airline pilots, a niche mm. market of teachers. Um, the point is that if you go deep with a niche market, you understand their situation, you can market yourself at an expert, you know where to find them, and you can build a program that caters to their value. And as a result, they'll refer you, you know, hand over fist once you're in. It's like once you're in, you're in. Right. And when you're out, you're out. So it's, it's, you know, that niche without a doubt. And then the social media side of things is the newest of how you can build through Facebook and LinkedIn and uh, Instagram and, and Twitter. Uh, uh, and you know, that was a slow progression because through regulatory things, you got to be able to make sure all of it's good. But I do see a lot of people being able to gain a lot of traction, building a brand and then promoting that brand and their experiences and, 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 um, their presence, um, through social media. So I would say those things. And then the other one that is traditional, but have expanded is center of influences, but it's an expanded definition. In my industry, most people, when they think center of influence, they think attorney, they think CPA, but we're talking about anybody. Right. You know, TQ, you can, you're a center of it. Like you're a center of influence for me. You know what I mean? And I can say, Hey, you know, through TQ sphere of influence, you know, I want to be able to expand something, but here's how I propose we do that. But it's, it's operating through center of influences to then be able to gain relationships and, uh, and, 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 you know, build a book of business. So I'd say, you know, all of those ways, I think are some of the common ways people are using. It sounds like, um, in a lot of ways that even though social media has grown, it hasn't replaced the quote unquote old school methods of building a business. Right. 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 Cause in the end refer referral based business in any business is always going to be the, the core, um, the core of anything that people do is, uh, that, that, transfer of trust of TQ knows me. He trusts me. He knows I do good work and he's confident. I'm not going to embarrass him if he refers me to somebody else. Cause I'm going to take care of him. I mean, in the end, that's always going to be the cool. Right. All these other things are just designed to, 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 I think further that or facilitate that, you know, faster. You mentioned, um, a big, something you mentioned a number of times is you want to make money, be successful and then make change. Uh, where did that come from? Where did that, uh, that philosophy come from? You know, um, it's a good question. Um, I almost, I, I think where it started was I was reading Earl Graves book and Earl Graves, for those who may not know, founder of black enterprise who started black enterprise. Um, and I remember him talking about when he started in his career and he said something to the effect of, you know, when he started out, he, he, you know, he wanted to be successful and then something else and something else and make some money. It was like a number of different things. And two things are different. One, it prompted me to say, you know what, I need to have a mission. I need to have a mission of what I'm going to do. Right. Uh, and then the second thing was there were certain elements of it that struck me. And then I just took that and created my own. So it became my mission is to make money, be successful and create change. Mm. Uh, and by the way, that mission for me also became part of my brand that I bring to other people because then that ended up becoming the Make Rain brand, actually, TQ. It became, you know, that is my mission 
is to help people make rain. And that making rain is being making money, being successful and creating change because, you know, when you make it rain, uh, uh, back to Native American culture, because that's where it came from. There's always this individual in the community who was believed to have these magical powers to bring the rain and feed the community and the crops, and everybody survived and was successful. That person was known as the rainmaker. Well, in business, making the rain is money. So the person bringing in the most money is the rainmaker. In a person's you know life, making rain is how they're able to bring money in or make money or invest money to be able to have all the things they want to be financially successful. Uh, in terms of being successful, that's about your career. That's about your own personal development, being your best self, but also being the best in your career and being successful so that you can have a legacy, so to speak, around what you do in your career. Make it rain is personal development. You know, it's it's relationships. It's, you know, uh, having meaningful relationships and then creating change without a doubt is make it rain because that's about how you can have an impact on other people. Because in the end, if you're just doing it selfishly, I don't think you can go as far. But if you are making an impact on other people, then that's what it's about. So it started with me, and then it evolved into, into that. Yeah. Let's let's um, make that quick transition. You're talking about the Make Rain brand, and we just spoke about social media. You, over the past couple of years, have had a consistent, concerted, successful effort of building a brand for yourself on social media uh, the make rain brand. Can you talk about what that is and, and, and elaborate more? You just talked about it a little bit. You said it started with you. What was that make rain brand, uh, thought process coming from and talk a little bit more about where you're going with that. So I, I have this, I have this belief that people don't remember you. They remember your reputation and meaning they, they don't remember Mark. They don't remember TQ per se, but they remember what you stand for. They remember, um, what you believe. They remember how you made them feel. They remember, you know, they remember your reputation around how you walk, talk and how you treat people and, you know, what you stand for. So, uh, the, you know, starting with me with that mission, I also said, well, it's not even just about me. It's also about the other things that I want in terms of an impact on other people, but I need to, I need to embody it in something in something that, you know, can be a phrase or something that can be a following or sort of brand. So this became, for me, my personal mantra of make rain. So in anything you do, you're trying to make rain. Right. And that's what then evolved into this thing that I that I wanted to expose on other people as part of my mission when I'm helping them to be able to do things. And then from that, uh, it did become something that I said, well, in that reputation, I want it to be something that is known because um, that is how I think people can buy into a philosophy or buy into something that you're trying to do in order to be able to influence them, then influence them. And then that expanded into this money motivation concept, which is really where the entire brand you mentioned earlier, social media and everything has been building this money motivation concept where I wanted to really take a lot of the things that I've already been talking about, but I wanted to take them and kind of embody them into a concept that could go much further than just talking about investments, but then be able to touch the youth. And so the make rain is where it started. That's the mission but the umbrella around that for me that you mentioned, I've been building this money motivation brand, which is really about uh, a belief that people that never give up, never give, give in. Those are going to be the people who influence the world. And I wanted something that could represent this next generation of creators and business leaders and entrepreneurs and hustlers and high achievers, and then create an apparel and publishing brand that embodied that concept, uh, uh, you know, in, in hustle excellence and freedom, so to speak. So, 
it started with the make rain and that's the personal mantra. And that also became what I led people with and then expanded to this umbrella of money motivation, which encompasses all of those things. And now it's, it's becoming this apparel and publishing movement that's continuing to be built. That's built a nice following over the past, you know, amount of time. And so that's, that's where it all came from. You built uh, a large following all over social media um, it's gotten you recognition in the shade room. Um, I think it's also part of what got you recognized in Savoy magazine. Um, and, 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 and you've done it very well. Um, I wonder why publishing in apparel, what's important about, cause you could have chosen many sectors to expand into in, in terms of a base of operations. First of all, what does publishing mean? I think i uh, apparel is, 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 I think that's pretty self-evident, but what, do you, what kind of things do you want to publish and why did you choose publishing and apparel as a place to build your brand? Right. Uh, it's a good question. So I wanted to build a company that could embody all the things I just mentioned. And then it's about figuring out well, what is, what is, what is the thing? What's the product? What is the thing? What is the pro- What are the people going to actually do? Um, and, and I'm gonna come back to your question, but it's important that I do this in this order. Right. I, I think, um, and, and it took a good friend of mine to actually point this out to me, but, um, most people, let's say they're thinking about a publishing brand and the publishing brand typically is going to be, um, articles. It's going to be, um, books. It's going to be, um, a lot of different things that, um, you may publish under a brand to educate people about a certain concept and it could branch off into another different things. But for me, it's articles, it's books, it's speaking. It's all of those things under a publishing brand that could, that could be embodied with that. I wanted to actually start with um, the apparel side of things because most people will start with a publishing and then sell some, you know, some t-shirts and some hats or whatever that talk about the publishing, right? Then and, and they dovetail off of that. For me, I said no. I actually want to start an apparel brand because apparel drives a lot of culture, and especially if you're targeting young people, for them to be able to buy into a concept because they think the brand as well as that clothing or apparel is cool and get them bought into that and then be able to dovetail that into something they can actually use. I felt like would be something that could develop uh, a more, a deeper following versus just saying, Hey, here's this book. You should read it because it's got some good information. Right, right. It's hey, listen, I, you know, building this following around the publishing on social media and, and the thing just quick hit things. But there's apparel tied to this that now you can wear that embodies this whole concept that now you're talking to your friends or your friends see, and they say, Hey, what is that all about? This represents me. This represents me and who I am. So I started with the apparel in order to gain that following and have something that could represent them. And then from there, now it is the publishing on social media, which is the social media money motivation.co and they get daily, publishing on quick hit things that are either uh, uh, inspirational or actual um, tactics they can use in business or um, uh, uh, motivational quotes uh, and a lot of things that can give them strategy around how they think. In addition to that, when they buy something, they actually get on a a newsletter. So they get a weekly uh, article that talks about some specific topics to give them specific education. They also get free reports related to this concept of money, success, and created change. And then from there, it's now expanding to the broader publishing side. So there's some books on the shelf, and then there's some speaking 
uh, that uh, I've been doing, but now it's going to expand because I got some partners who are also going to be involved with this and we'll have a speaking tour tied to this and then all of it's going to come together. So that's how it all came about. And that was the order of it. Uh, and that's the platform. So it'll be an apparel publishing and speaking platform long term. Talk about the speaking uh, platform and the tour. What do you have in mind there? So there it, it will be the same concepts of make money, be successful, create change. It's going to take those three, but break them apart. So there'll be three, you know, components to it, so to speak. But uh, I, I really, the, the, the concept without giving away too much is almost going to be a la Kings, a comedy type style. So it's going to incorporate an entertainment music and other pieces to it. But the educational component will actually be the core because, you know, People would rather be entertained and educated, but if you can do both, you got them. Right. So the concept is we're going to have that as a, as a rapper, but there is going to be some true education around how do you actually make money in this country and become rich? Mm. How do you actually set up the elements and principles of how to be successful, no matter what career you're in and what to do and how to execute on it? And then how do you take all of that and then truly make sure you're making some change on any level, whether that's in your family, your community, broader scale or whatever and bring it all together. So that's the, that's the concept. Very nice. Now you're targeting young people. Is there a reason uh, you chose that particular demographic? So um, I chose that demographic because that is where most of the buzz is in particular when we talk about social media and or um, energy is the millennial generation in terms of how they think is I think much more um, it's not as risk averse is probably the best way I could say it. I see a lot more millennials who are interested in entrepreneurship, interested in incentive-based businesses, not interested in the traditional route. And that is in line with a lot of the concepts that, that are being taught. So that was the purpose was to target that. And because this was a part of, giving back to reaching back and saying, all right, let's pull up this next generation and teaching these things that we've already taught. None of it's to the exclusion of anybody. And when I say, when I say to you, you know, I'm actually taught the target market is really 25 to 45, to be honest with you, it's that bucket, right. 25 to 45. But the millennial generation is a lot of the uh, promotion around things is targeted at figuring out how to cater to that market to help build them up because they'll build the energy, thus the money, thus the buzz, thus the following. And it's a business and it's a for-profit business in the end. So we got to have it. What, what do you think it's taken for you to be successful at building this brand? Like how, what are the key traits and skills you need to be able to, to pull off what you've done, getting as much notoriety as you have, building your Instagram, building your social media and starting to build this whole publishing and, and apparel platform? I think that the concept needs to be something that is intriguing. I think that the brand needs to be uh, something that uh, that people can buy into or sink their teeth into, and that can be um, um, timeless, so to speak. Meaning, you know, there are a lot of things that may be fads, but I was trying to think of something that actually could apply to anybody. It could, um, it, it could, it, a lot of people could actually relate to, but then. Uh, have a logo and a brand and a concept that people actually could get behind. So I think you, you got to think longer term, I guess, is where I'm trying to go. The, the fly-by-night or the day-to-day things that are fast, I was trying to stay away from. I wanted to connect with something that actually had some teeth, that had an identity that people could relate to, 
that could actually last for a long time, but then have a um, a visual a visual piece to it that people say um, that I like that. I mean, that is something I would wear. That is something that I would promote. That right. is something that. Uh, could represent me. I mean, it, it's got to be, you know, it's got to be all of those, the physical side, the, the visual side of it, the uh, emotional side of it, and then the intellectual side of it. It's like all of those components to me need to connect in a way that'll, that'll connect with your audience. And that's what I tried to create. So thinking about the logo, you know, you can go on a bunch of iterations on how that might look. Thinking about the dynamic of how the social media posts and the website would look to make sure that feel is right. Thinking about the emotional connection with the concept and the brand and the mission. Does that connect with people? Thinking about the intellectual side of it and how we could do all of those things to me, I think matter. And yeah, it takes time. It takes some time. You have to put a lot of thought and time into it and test, test and test market and figure it out. But uh, in the end, you know, I came with something that I'm, that I'm actually really proud of that I know people are really connected with. And uh, that's, I think, really helped build the following and we got more to do. So uh, you have definitely built a strong following, um, both on Instagram, um, as well as uh, in your on your website with your newsletter from a tactical standpoint, because part of uh, the, the purpose of the show is to, you know, not everybody get a chance to get the chance to talk with Mark Ranger. So, you know, you're a virtual mentor to some folks who are listening to this, some of them who may be following your brand online. Um, w- do you have a team that helps you do this? Are you doing this all on your own in between all your speeches, putting this stuff up? Um, how are you able to, to be so prolific as just one person trying to make it happen? Good question. No way I do this on my own. I do have a team, but it is a virtual team. Uh, for the most part, I have, I have a few people in, in Los Angeles that I've worked directly with, but the majority of people are virtual. Um, so I got a creative director in terms of all the photos and the visuals and all of those things. And he does all the photos and the visuals. I have a social media manager who actually manages the social media. I have a graphic, uh, artist who does all of the, you know, uh, the graphic, uh, the graphics that we need and, and, and creates the things that we need and the images that we need and, and, and the things related to that. Um, from a, um, content standpoint, I have researchers. So here's what's in my head. You know, I'm talking to them. Here's what's in my head. Uh, this is what I need you to go find so that we can create some content. I need you to develop X percentage of it, and then I'm going to come in and fine-tune it and that type of thing. So, yeah, absolutely. Got to have that. The researchers to be able to get that done. Um, and then the online network of people who are already online, who are influencers that I'll network with to help build the brand and or promote and or I can connect with to be able to continue to get it out is an important piece. They're not on the team per se, but I'd be remiss if I didn't say that's an important piece of the formula is the people that you know in the either um, industry that you're in or the markets you're trying to promote, you got to have a network of people that you can leverage to be able to, uh, uh, you know, continue to get what you're trying to get out. So all of those people are all part of the team, whether live or virtual, to be able to do it. When you say you network with people online, um, for those folks who are trying to build something up new and they want to do the same thing, what does that look like? How are you finding them? How are you staying in touch with them to keep the relationship fresh um, and, and one where both of you benefit so they want to keep promoting with you and working with you and stuff like that? Yeah, that's simple. So, uh, the first, the first piece was just reaching, literally reach, 
no, three pieces. One was researching, all right, who in the apparel industry, as well as the marketing industry online and the, what I'll call the um, success money, motivation, leadership type, you know, industry who are online or have a high presence on social media um, that have a following that I'm also trying to attract because that's an important piece. Do they have a following that I also am trying to attract that's in my niche market that I can reach out to and either have a strategic partnership, meaning there's some cross-promotion opportunity or something that I can do for them and in turn they can you know, help promote my business or a paid partnership if, if it needs to be an economic uh, exchange to start out to say, hey, look, Here's what I'm attempting to do. You know, how can we set this up? So one of the two, but it doesn't matter which one exists. I'm still able to build a relationship with them. And then long term, it becomes we're able to do things for one another. It becomes a bartering system. You know, you do this for me. I do this for you. And we can both build our brands and or promote our products and or build our following and or, you know, maybe there's somebody that you know that I can connect with that I was trying to get to or vice versa. Um so it's doing the research, number one, number two, then reaching out. And then number three is then leveraging those relationships to give because it can't be a one-way street. I right. know I didn't break it down that way as I was saying it, but that's the three pieces I was trying to say. It's the research in that, then it's the reaching out to make the connection and figuring out either paid or uh, through uh, exchanging favors. And then the building the relationship over time by offering, because the key to it is, you got to have something to offer. You got to have something to give. You can't just take, take, take. It's got to be, you know, uh, offering things that are helpful to them as well. And then through that, you can leverage and build a relationship. And now I got some connections where you know, there's some people online or on social media. I can reach out and, you know, they'll do anything or promote anything or, you know, anytime I'd ask for them to do it. Very nice. Um, one, a couple more questions, then we'll uh, move to close. Um, yeah. You're, your dad started off way back when you were choosing whether to get your MBA or a law degree, said we never had an economic movement. How is the economic movement going now? And uh, what are your plans to help push it forward? We, we're not anywhere near a point of arrival. We, the mindset is the biggest thing that we're trying to overcome. I, I still think that we don't have a mindset that understands um, that we live in a capitalistic country and that's not going to change. Um, and in order to have any say control over things that go on in our communities, uh, the only way that we will truly be able to do that is having the economic base to be able to do it. Um, let alone being able to forward or advance our families and, the things that uh, we want to accomplish in this world, we need the money to be able to do it. I mean, people get rich, um, you know, really three ways, the stock market, real estate, uh, or being in an incentive-based career or owning a business are the ways that we do it. Do we have enough people who are involved in those efforts? I would say no, uh, because we're still mentally, I think many times, okay with taking the safe route and feeling that that's going to get us to where we want to be. And it's not. Um, so I think it's the mindset of understanding, you know, the, the system that we live in and, and what, what we'll do to change it. Uh, it's like WD, uh, WB Du Bois. He said, capitalism is like having three ears of corn. You eat one, you sell one and you save one for next year's harvest. Mm. So when you eat one, you're, you're a consumer, 
right? I think we got that down pretty good. When you sell one, you are, uh, you're, you're an entrepreneur or you're, you're in an incentive-based environment and you're offering something in value in exchange for some type of revenue. And when you save one for next year's harvest, you're an investor. You're saving an investor. And so the consumption piece we got down, but how do we get the selling piece? How do we get the harvesting piece down? I think is, you know, from a mindset perspective, we still got a little ways to go. And then taking that and translating that back to even why, you know, my focus on the millennial generation, let's say as a niche market, is how we can get that next generation to adopt that mentality in terms of just, that's just the way that they think about approaching the world. You know, and I think that to your last question of my effort in doing that, it's that. It's how can I spark and get their interest in how they approach the world to be that, to be how they can think about the world from the standpoint of, how can I offer some value in exchange for something? And then in turn, use that to invest in the stock market and real estate and things that are going to appreciate with value and build a base of wealth. So I'm not just passing on debt in my last name to my kids. <laughs> that's the next step. Right. That's what, that's the next step. That's how I think about it. So that's my effort to do it. And then building, and then in the meantime, building something of value, not only in the financial industry, but with my own businesses that are proof of that, you know, to be able to do it. And, 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 and having a formula to do it with all the people you mentioned that, you know, that, um, that you'll work with to be able to build it. And I didn't even mention in that, the option on the apparel side, I got the manufacturers, I got the distribution, uh, you know, company, I got, you know, all of those companies set up and, and manufacturers to be able to produce all those things. Well, understanding a model of how to set something like that up in whatever industry you're in, I think is important too. So that's my effort is to one, get them thinking that way so they can be on that train but then actually giving them, um, giving them uh, models. I think models on how to think in formulas to actually be able to do it. Very nice. Um, you, you obviously haven't done this alone. And you mentioned your dad. Who have been some other important mentors in your life and in your career? Uh, without naming them by name, what, what I would say is I've had uh, coaches who still to this day have been tremendous mentors. I've had um, uh, some teachers and instructors on both levels, undergrad as well as graduate, who have been mentors. And and I'm saying it this way because a lot of these are point-in-time mentors. They may not still be mentors now, but they are, you know, point-in-times. And then the financial industry, individuals who've been in the financial industry a lot longer than me, you know, they, they have been definitely mentors to me uh, from a financial piece. So I would say all of those, elements based on things I've done in my life, as well as, you know, areas of business that I've been in my life. I mean, I've had points of industry with, you know, entry with mentors in each one of those, but it, it, it went both ways. It was, you know, I sought it out, but they also saw something in me. And as a result, we were willing and able to develop a relationship that, uh, that I think has guided me along the way. And there's no way, I mean, my dad, of course, was the main crux of that, but that mentorship and feedback and, just like I was talking about giving models of how to think and what to do is the same thing I got from all these individuals that they gave me. They gave me models on how to think and formulas on how to do it because the discernment, it's like this. Anything you do is never one decision that makes a difference. It's, right. a, it's a combination of a series of decisions you make over time that lead to where you are. And to the extent that you can improve those decisions, the better off you are in life. So in every one of those areas of my career, from athletics to uh, academics, to uh, the financial industry and wealth management and business and, and what I'm in right now, 
it's been those individuals who, you know, were willing to actually give me some of that discernment to help make better decisions that made all the difference. Without naming them, um, what what are a couple of of those lessons uh, that you were taught that helped develop that discernment? So um, I would I would I would point out to and I know I mentioned earlier that um, from my father, I know I, I pointed out my father's lessons and the things that, you know, he gave me um, earlier on. But yeah. like after that, any other any other ones throughout your career, you picked any point in time mentors or stuff you picked up that's like you carrying that through? Two things. The mental the mental edge piece. And I talked about mental toughness earlier, but a lot of those mentors and what they were teaching me were trying to give me, look, the, the, this is a game of inches mm. and you got to have the, 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 the mental edge to be able to, to, to stand out, let's say. Uh, so that mental edge comes from these decisions that you're making and, you know, this formula that I'm giving you or how you're going to do that. But it's so important that you have this, this mental edge, you know, um, in everything that you do, because it's always going to be competitive. It's always going to be, you know, uh, scenarios in which you're trying to um, uh, be better than the next person. And or at least at, at, at most part, if not be better than the next person, at least achieve your vision. That's probably a better way to say it. Right. And you got to be able to have that men- mental edge to get there. That, that's one I would say if I'm trying to think of threads that I've seen through all of them. The other one that I, that I point out is this constant, um, desire you should have for improvement. So mm, yeah. self-improvement, improvement in your business, being a student of the game and learning, like there's a common thread I could see with all of them. And it took me a minute to think as you asked me that question, but that that's what's coming to my brain. Uh, this common thread is those two things. There's constant desire to continue to improve and be a student of the game. And then, having that mental edge because it's always a game of inches and, and the person who has that mental edge is the one that, you know, can get to the next, the next phase. And if you can apply that to all the things that you're being taught and what you're doing, you know, you can be, you're going to be in a better position. I, um, I, a, a lot of my friends and even people who are family, I see certain people and they remind me of close friends. I said, that reminds me of so-and-so that reminds me of so-and-so. Um, I mentioned earlier, Chadwick Boseman, he's the kind of person who reminds me of you. Because he's very low, uh, like understated, you know, in terms of and you you can I know you can be the life of the party. But I think generally when you when you present yourself, you don't try to be the life of the party. You just are who you are. Right. But there's a clear confidence that you have that I think Chadwick Bozeman he shares that with you where they, you know, you walk around and you can tell they have that certain confidence. And I thought of that because what you said about the mental edge, maybe that's where it's coming from, is you work to hone and develop and define that mental edge. And it's apparent um, in the groups you hang around, you don't try to be somebody you're not. You don't try to impress anybody. You just are who you are. And it comes across confidently. Um, if you could tell somebody how to develop that mental edge, what would you tell them to do? The confidence, which when you have a mental edge, that, that does come from a place of confidence. But I think the place of confidence comes from a place of self-belief. So the first step is there is a, a strong self-belief that you have to have in order to have the confidence and gain a mental edge. If you, and this, this is not meant to be cliche. This actually is meant to be uh, grounded in what's real. 
of anybody who you've seen that's been you know highly successful or made any type of incredible change, they're no matter what was in their way or what obstacles they faced or what people threw at them, they had this self belief, this this belief in themselves that it doesn't matter what you throw at me, you're not gonna shake me off my 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 line. Right. You're not gonna shake me off my line. You're not gonna shake me off my line. And that comes from a place within. Like nobody you have to you have to have that. You have to have that in order to, I think, have a confidence and then gain that mental edge is the self-belief that, that you can throw whatever you want at me, but you're not knocking me off my line. Mm-hmm. I might, you know, set back a little bit. I might, you know, this or that, but you're not, you're not, you're not, you're not, lock, you're not knocking me, you know, off my line. Um, so that's why I think it starts. And then, and then the next piece is almost tied to that continuous self-improvement is in order to, on the edge side of things, it's, um, it's, um, um, uh, continuing to um, learn and be uh, um, understand the things that will help you continue to grow and advance by what you read, by by who you talk to, by your mentorship, by who you learn from, because everything you need to know, most of the time, somebody's probably done before. But we can't be so uh, egotistical, let's say, to think that we know everything right. and and not actually try to learn from something that somebody's done before, because that's what I think allows you to connect the dots. When you can be that student at a game and learn from other people and be open to understanding those things, but constantly be trying to do that and get better, when you go into situations, you are clear. Like, there's a clarity you can have. Because I think what happens, PQ, is, in terms of this mental edge piece that you asked me about is, uh, when you are unclear or unsure about yourself from a self-belief standpoint and or unclear because you just don't have the knowledge because you haven't done enough homework, research, and learned enough, you get into situations and you get confused. And when you get confused, you can't be aggressive. Right. And if you can't be aggressive, how are you going to have an edge? So I think it's, it's, it's about those things are, uh, allow you to have a clarity to go into any situation and be grounded. And then when you're grounded, you can't get confused and thus you can be aggressive and then you can you can have you can have that edge over other people that do get confused or maybe don't have a self-belief. That's why I think it, you know, it's it's those two things that come to mind when you ask me that question is you gotta have that self-belief, but you also gotta continually be that student of the game, continue to be learning more so that when you go into any situation, either specific situation that you're preparing for or you know, more broad, just connecting the dot situations, you can have some clarity about how you're going to move, how you're going to maneuver, and that's how you can gain that edge. Mm, that's really rich, man. Um, in your career, uh, have you had to overcome or deal with any type of bias that you've had to deal with? Um, in my career. Mm-hmm. Or in my career in life? Or just, just period? I mean, I mean more so... so in, in achieving the success that you have, have you faced obstacles yeah. that you've had to overcome from a bias standpoint that you've had to deal with and push through? Because a part like so the, the philosophy of the of breaking the glass is four parts. One is teach yourself how to do better or learn, just like you talked about being a student of the game. The second one is teach others how to do the same, just like you talked about giving back to other people. The third one is publicize the success stories, which is why we do the podcast. The fourth is ignore the haters. The haters is about, you know, those things that people will come at you with. And and, and in terms of a people of color standpoint, it's generally has it's this bias standpoint. So have you had to overcome that to ignore the haters to still accomplish what you're trying to do? 
so what I, the way I would describe that is what comes to mind is um, in our generation, obviously it's it's more it's it, it's it's always there. I think bias is always there. Racial bias is always there. Um, it always exists. Um, statistically, in my industry, when I started in my industry, it was you know African Americans and Black folks represented two percent of the entire industry of financial professionals. Okay, so. Um, there's not some inherent bias there. I don't know what it is, but that's just a statistical thing. Um, that's grown since then, but because um, I think now it might be around six or seven percent. Mm. Uh, but that's in the history of that's in the history of the world. <laughs> no, but but you know it's still there in terms of just just being able to overcome a volume of, of of representation. I would say that I think exists more broadly, but more specifically to me, what I would say is this. Um, the things that I've experienced when I started in my career were things like this, people coming in to, let's say uh, an initial meeting to be able to talk about um, uh, financial advice and wealth management and investing money. I've never met them face to face, but maybe I talked to them on the phone. They may or may not be able to distinguish, you know, what my race is over the phone. And then I meet with them and it's the comments like, you're not what I was expecting Mm. or, uh, I definitely, I know for a fact, I've had people decide not to hire me because I was black. Right. Um, uh, so there's some bias in that. Option. And it had nothing to do with my intelligence, my knowledge, my educational background, my ability to do what needed to be done. There was a bias because either I wasn't what they were expecting or they had some uh, insecurity around me managing their money and helping them with their advice. Right. I've definitely had scenarios that have that 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 were like that in particular early in my career yeah like you just gonna the take it all and, and go get some chicken and waffles right. with it or something right right you know just just and and and, and they only have to say it sometimes you know what i mean it's obvious it's very obvious many times that i would experience that and, and know you know i would know okay I, I know what this is about but it is what it is the second thing is as an, as an executive let's say so as an executive um i'll give you an example so i went to I had a conference about I don't know, three or four years ago and I'm at this conference and, you know, they'll have the day conference and stuff into their nighttime things. And they'll have parties or, you know, different things going on. So we're at this, this particular event after sessions for this financial conference. And I'm there and I see a group of people that I know and I go over to say hello to everything. There's this woman sitting there I don't recognize. And I'm thinking that the woman is maybe with one of the guys there or maybe their wife or their, I don't know, whoever it was, or maybe their auntie. So uh, she's sitting there and I walk up, she looks at me and, and this is what she said to me. She says, you're black. Wow. And I look, no, I'm serious. And I, and I, and I look at the guys, I, I think somebody's setting me up. Tico. Like mm. I think somebody's trying to make a joke or something. Right. So I kind of look a little confused and I say, I'm sorry, you know, what'd you say? And she said, no, you, you're really black. Oh my goodness. And then she, and then she says, can I see your hand? Oh. And now I'm thinking, you can't be serious. I, this, this has got to be a joke, right? And she says, you're white. And I said, yeah, I, I, uh, I said, yeah, I, I'm black. I said, you obviously are really white. Is there something that you're trying to accomplish here? I mean, what are you, what are you trying to communicate to me right now? Because at this point, I'm getting irritated right. after I realize it's not a joke. Ain't nobody doing it. I'm getting irritated. Uh, and I said, I said, it's obvious that you're really white. You're, you're showing that color right now by the response you're giving to me. Um, you know, you want to tell me what you're trying to accomplish right now. And then that's when I realized that she's, she's drunk off of her rocker. Right. Like she is just, you know, she is ridiculously drunk. Now, 
two things related to that. One is True Colors coming out when when she's got liquor in her sure. and, you know, that type of thing. I'm at this conference where I'm one of the only black people there. And I see this woman I've never met before uh, whose True Colors are coming out in some way. And in some way, in her mind, she's it's almost like she's surprised that I'm even there. Yeah. You know what I mean? That I'm yeah. even in this company of whatever the case may be. But then the second thing is it came to me. I can't sit up here and argue with a drunk person because then I'm going to look stupid. Right. So, <laughs> I'm not about to sit up and have no intellectual conversation or jab at her because she is drunk off of her rocker about to fall out of this chair. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a small example, but I think a large representative example of the types of things that, um, you know, from a biased perspective, maybe said or unsaid, but actually exist. And then the only other one that I'll give is more of the lifestyle thing. So, Obviously, you lived in Los Angeles. You know how LA is. You know it's Hollywood in certain areas, and it's and it's it's neighborhood in others. Right. Um, but you know, having a, a nice car, living in a nice house, and actually making a, a meaningful amount of money without anybody knowing who I am. What what are they saying, PQ? Yeah, they know. Oh, yeah. You 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 must be an athlete. Right. Or you know you you a criminal. <laughs> you know you you must be yeah you must be a criminal. You must be dealing drugs or something like that. Those types of things, and you know, whether jokingly or not, it's still some bias. You know, we can't be, for some reason, professional business people who've actually built a career from scratch and made something of themselves without being an athlete or a drug dealer. Right. And how did you, how do you overcome that? How do you personally overcome that stigma or those kind of things that you know are in the air? Two ways. Achieving more success. Mm. Achieving more success achieving more success. And secondly, I actually call it out. I actually, you, you know, I do a lot of presentations, thank you. Yeah. And um, there are times where I, I um, it may be my own comment, maybe may my own way to do my own commentary, let's say on the whole state of the situation. Yeah. And sometimes it's my way of sarcastically being able to do it. But, you know, I will, I'll call situations out. I One, one example is um, I, I gave a presentation and, uh, uh, I invited a, an individual who is on a different side of the financial industry, but in, in, in many ways provides products and investments to advisors, let's say that I may manage or work with who will want to sell. And this individual is a young black man. And I invited him to come and be a part of this event and also say a few words to greet the crowd. So I had him come up and do that. And mind you, we're the only two black people in this room, 120 people that I'm speaking to. Wow. So I invited him to come up. He spoke. After he got done, Here's what I said. I said, I know what y'all are thinking. I said, you're probably thinking I invited him here because he's black. And first they didn't know how to take that. <laughs> and then I said, I said, I said, um, and you're right. And they started laughing, you know, but I was, sit- I was sitting there deadpan, TQ, like not smiling or anything, but I was serious. And I did. But the point was, Look, I know what's going on in you all's head. Right. But I did invite him here because he's a professional. He knows what he's doing. I did invite him here because he's black, because there's no representation. And I want y'all to know it. Mm. So they're thinking it's a joke, you know, and they're laughing. But I'm sitting there deadpan, you know, saying it. And he obviously couldn't believe it. He still tells it to this day. He couldn't believe I was saying this, you know, in front of all these folks. Right. But that's, you know, that's it's just things like that. I think achieving more success and then in some way finding your way to be able to you know, I think just 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 um, speak position to it. situations that are obvious. That's right, and speak to it in a way that uh, 
you know, can bring life to it is, I mean, that's how I combat it. To answer your question. Yeah. You know, a lot of people, man, who have achieved your success will be more likely to guard their position and stay silent and talk around the issue. But you, you are addressing it head on, man. Where, where does that come from? It comes from a belief that I have that you got to be authentic. I think in anything you do, you got to be authentic and you got to be real. And if you're not that, um, one, I, back to your reputation, I really don't think genuinely people will buy into you when you're not authentic. But secondly, um, it, it, in my mind, back to that self-belief, it is difficult for you to truly be able to be your best self and progress in the things that you're trying to do. If you're not authentic and most people can smell the BS, they can can see right through it. So I think, I think that being authentic and for me, that's part of me being authentically me, you know, in, in, in whatever way it is. And and I think you gotta be authentic and you gotta be real. And that's, that's real for me. I mean, that's, you know, and, 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 and I'm, I'm okay with, um, doing it in that way. And what, you know, the ironic thing about it is TQ, it, it turns the tables a little bit and it almost, makes people you know want to be around you more you know because you're real because you're real that's right because you're real because you're real about it It makes people want to be around you more because you're you're saying the things everybody's thinking or not willing to say or not wanting to say let's say for example you know in the right way you know you're not gonna be stupid about it right right but 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 i do think that being your authentic self and, and allowing some of that to show is um an important part of building your brand. It's an important part, I think, of connecting with people and it's an important part of you still holding on because you know, you know, in my industry and a lot of industries do, they'll, they'll, they'll try to eat you up and yeah. make you somebody that you're not. Right. And I think you got to hold on to that, you know, to continue on and, and, and stay grounded and that's, you know, that's the way that I that I attempt to do it. Well, and for the people who don't know you, man, you are a person who people like to be around. There's always people at your house. Have you put out the word for a barbecue there will be no space come early because the <laughs> yeah. chicken will be gone um you, no you keep good friends get a lot of respect so i can authenticate the fact that that, that the way you carry yourself um is uh, followed by what you said more attractive this more connection more authentic relationships so it's a good thing for people to aspire to right. um what are three books right. that you would give as a gift Three books that I and 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 let me clarify that question. Do you mean just in life, or are you talking specific to, you know, with the things I'm talking about with with money, success, and change, or it doesn't matter. <laughs> Any, yeah, it doesn't matter. Life, money, whatever. If you had three books to give somebody, it doesn't matter. I've had everything from the the Bible to the Giving Tree. So you you know you I got you. You, you give what you want. So here, here, here's what I, here's, here's the, the books that I'll get. Actually, I'm going to give four just because you said that. And, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, TQ, but, you know, some of the questions that you've asked around bias, excuse me, around some of the experiences, um, as well as maybe even the audience, um, there would be, in my opinion, an audience of, of young black entrepreneurs, business people, high achievers, or other who may listen to this and, and, and as part of a target audience. 100%. Right or wrong 100%. About that. Okay. Having said that, the first book that I want to say then is one of my favorite books. And it is a fictional book, but tied to that in particular, Young Black Man. Um, Native Son by Richard Wright is mm. one of my favorite books. Yes. And, 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 and I absolutely believe, and it's funny how if you look at all the things going on today, this book is so applicable, but 
I would absolutely encourage um, you to read this book if you haven't already read it. I know many may have, but the the concept of this book uh, and and the and the main character, Bigger Thomas, I think is such a representation of so many things that we need to understand and never forget. I mean, the anger, fear, and frustration that he had, um, where he felt like there was no hope, and put into situations in which he may have made some bad decisions. The example of exploitation that this book lays out, the misperceptions that it lays out, the, the effects of social conditions that it, uh, that it lays out, and, and really the product of, of American culture and violence and racism and, and socialism that exists, that created this native son, you know, is what it talks about. Right. And how that, cycle, how that cycle has got to end. Or will produce more. Yeah. And how can you be mad at that mm. type thing? And I, so this book is powerful as a as a work of art. And any young black person, uh, you know, young or old, I mean, it doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> but, I may need to read know, it again. I, I read that I, I book, gotta, I think, like in maybe eighth or ninth grade, man. And that made me the most militant yeah. brother in the history of the universe. That one and then Black Boy. Yeah, I followed up with Black Boy right after that by Richard Wright. Both of those books are by Richard no, Wright. Richard Wright. That's right. So anyway, now enough about that. But 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 that I'm passionate about. That is one of my favorite books all the time. In terms of related to business and the things that uh, I, I, I um, that I would recommend, there are three books that have really had a, a huge impact on me. One is The Forty Eight Laws of Power mm. by Robert Greene. Uh, I absolutely think that if you're going to be in business and really understand the dynamic of of a number of different things related to that. You got to know these laws. You got to know these principles. So you know how to use them, know when they use against you and know how to maneuver. Second is this book called influence. That's uh, it's called influence. Uh, the subtitle is the psychology of persuasion. <clears throat> Everything that you do is about the dynamic of human behavior. And to the extent that you can influence people, the extent that you'll be able to win. Um, and this book, I think is the Bible on influence. It teaches you how to influence people. Uh, and it's an, it's an incredible book. Robert Cialdani is the name. It's the author. Um, the last book is uh, uh, Swim with the Sharks by Harvey McKay. Um, that book, from a sales aspect, because, you know, the, the industry that I'm in and, and industry or, or, or what most people do on a day-to-day basis is all about sales. But in particular, if you're going to be in business, I think this book is an incredible book around understanding sales, understanding competition, understanding how to maneuver, understanding how to outwit understanding the key pieces to developing relationships and making sales and uh, motivating and, and, uh, and convincing people and building relationships uh, in a very competitive environment. Uh, Swim with the Sharks by Harvey McKay was the third one. Those three business books, and there are a lot of other Seven Habits and you know, How to Win Friends, and you know, obviously a lot of books that people have read that are great. But for me, these three have probably had the biggest impact on my thinking from a business standpoint and I've had the most application from these three books out of any books from a business standpoint. Very nice, man. So people want to know you're a regular guy, even though you're highly successful and the king of LA soon to be out here in D town. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we can yeah. bring that power out this way. Okay. Uh, but so what do okay. you do for fun? You got any guilty pleasures thing you do for fun? My, my fun is cooking. It's sports. I love football. I love boxing. Uh, it's, it's to your point, spending time with family and friends. I mean, some of the best times and when coming over and we got food and we playing dominoes and telling lies and playing cards and having some fun. 
So I love spending time uh, with, with, with family and friends and then reading. I mean, I know, you know, from a hobby standpoint, that's it all reading. I, I love to read, you know, I just love to, to get in books and read and uh, be able to, to, to gain knowledge. So, I mean, if I think about the things that I do outside of work on a consistent basis, there are a lot of other things that I do that are random hobbies or random things, but you know, outside of work, those are probably my most favorite things to, to participate in. Very nice, man. Um, and where can people find you online? So online, um, the, uh, well, I'll start the, the website in terms of the business we talked about earlier is moneymotivation.com on social media. The social media handle is moneymotivation.co, C-O. Um, my personal Instagram account is at Mark M A R C underscore Ranger R A N G E R on, um, uh, Instagram as well as, uh, on Facebook. And there's also a Facebook account for money motivation at moneymotivation.co. Um, and my email is Mark Ranger at moneymotivation.com. I think those are all the main ones. Very nice. Very nice, brother. It's been a great conversation with you. Uh, love chatting with you. And I think people learned a lot. My guest today has been Mark Ranger. Mark, thanks for coming on the show. My man. Hey, thank you, T.Q. Love what you're doing. Love the platform. Look, you've been one of my best friends for a long time. It doesn't matter how long it takes us to talk, or how long it takes us to connect. You know, I love you. You got a beautiful family and I appreciate you doing this and even having me on. man. Love you, too, brother. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating and review on iTunes or Google Play.